Would you open God's precious holy word to Ephesians chapter 1. True story, not that I would lie to you. I was eight years old when my daddy bought a, he, the Republic Steel Corporation made the corporate decision to close all of their commissaries. He was the manager of the commissary in Gadsden at Republic Steel. So he bought a business with the little buyout they gave him in East Gadsden and he started a clothing business and worked there for 40 years. I was eight years old. He put me to work. It was my responsibility to make sure that the trash cans stayed empty and that the leaves stayed swept out from in front of the front doors. That was my responsibility to begin with. Right next to, so I got paid. I started out at 50 cents an hour. Next door to the store was a very large drugstore. Just as you go into the front door of the drugstore to the right, there was a rack. It was a, it was a wooden rack. I guess as long as that part of the wall up here. And it had three rows of comic books. So I was a, I was a money-making man. And when I got paid, I would go, they would, you know, they would spray paint the corners, the top corners to let you know it would either be blue or yellow or green or red or something. And you could always know by the color code, which was the newest ones. And I never missed them. I never, I was always there when the newest ones, and I, and I don't, you know, I didn't read the love stories. And I didn't, but I loved the superheroes. I was there when Marvel Comics started their stories of superheroes, super, uh, Spider-Man, all of them, all of them. So I read comic books for, oh, from, the, from then until I was like, I don't know, maybe 12 years old. You didn't have these devices, you know, back then. And I saved them. Now, back in those days, when my mother would go grocery shopping, she would bring home a carload of groceries in heavy brown paper sacks. I don't know if they still do that or not. They have, you know, brown paper sacks, big, thick things. She would always save her paper sacks. She'd fold them back up neatly and put them in, you know, you always need a paper sack, I guess. And when those things got wet, they stunk. But anyway, that's beside the point. I always carefully placed, I would get a grocery sack about once a week, and I would care for all the Superman comics and the Marvel stuff, the DC stuff. I would carefully place my once read comic books down on the bottom. And they were, this is about the only time I've ever been orderly 
is I kept my comic books neat and in order. Well, you know, you get, you get to where you don't uh, read comic books anymore. It was, you know, girls in high school and stuff. So, well, okay, all right, thank you. <clears throat> she forgave me right off the bat. There was a back stairwell in this house that went right up to my room. I guess that meant that I was in the servant's room. I don't know, but uh, it went right up from what mother had made into a laundry room right up. And nobody ever used this, just an old narrow. That's where I kept my comic books. On a particular day, a particular time, daddy decided he wanted to rearrange things. So I had to move my bag. I guess I had 20 sacks of comic books. I don't know. I moved them out. We had a, at our house, there was a three-car garage with a garage apartment on top. It was long in there. My brothers, my oldest brothers, they, my older brothers, they started getting married and everybody was. So he decided to take two of those garages and make a den out of it. I, I can't remember if the bathroom was included in it the first time or not. So they'd have a little more room and that far left garage was turned into a storage room. I had a key to it. By now, I'm probably in college. And so I had all of my comic books neatly stored in that storage room. I didn't look at them all the time. They were just there. I always knew they were there. But upon a certain day, I needed something out of that storage room. It wasn't a tool. I've never looked for a tool in my life. I wouldn't know what to do with a tool if I had one. But there was something out there that I was trying to find. And I noticed that all of those grocery sacks were gone. So I asked my mother, I said, what happened to all my comedy? Well, sure, your daddy threw them away. <laughs> okay. It didn't, it didn't really register that much until, and I looked this up last night to get the most modern, the most up-to-date information. The original Spider-Man comic book recently sold for $1.1 million. <laughs> all of the other superheroes had them all. The original ones that came out, it was all in the early 60s. Man, that was in my day of reading comic books. The original Fantastic Four recently sold a copy, a pristine copy like mine would have been, half a million bucks. Iron Man 375,000. Incredible Hulk, 300,000. Now, I had the original Supergirl comic book. <laughs> and uh, I saw on that list that the original Supergirl, one had recently sold for $27,000. So I don't know. The 
that's the, 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 okay. I won't go any further than that. But uh, it sounds unconstitutional anyway. Doesn't it? All right. And for all those years, <laughs> I just really never paid attention to how rich I was. Now, may I bring that forward to the book of Ephesians? As believers in Christ, for some reason we don't realize how rich we are in Christ. We have this unbelievable account upon which we can draw. It will never be diminished forever. Paul was in a Roman prison, probably around 60, 61 AD. He wrote four epistles from prison. One of them was what we're going to begin to study today that we call Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But I want to start with, uh, no, I'll just start at the first and we'll go from there, all right? Paul, he's in prison. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. I want us to extract 12 thoughts from this passage. Here's what we're going to find in the first, first six verses, we'll find that we have immeasurable blessings from the Father. And then after that, down to about verse 12, we will discover, not today, but we will discover that we have immeasurable blessings in the Son. And then right after that, we will find that we have immeasurable blessings in the Holy Spirit. Today, the immeasurable blessings that we have in God the Father. So Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. There are 14 men in history who could claim that title. This title is the title of the God called man who would be the mouthpiece of God and the spokesman of Jesus Christ, the writer of New Testament work. 14, there were the 12, but Judas left the group. <laughs> So he never wrote it. He, he went to his own place, which was hell, but it was by the design of God. That's another story from the Gospels. But there were 12, but take away Judas, finally. And then there was Matthias. And then finally, the 14th was the Apostle Paul. That means that God had determined that he would empower and spiritually resource a person to carry the gospel of Christ 
and to teach even higher New Testament theology to the church of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is an apostle. He had a particular job. He was commissioned to carry the gospel, of course, to the Gentiles. So number one, someone was designated by God, empowered by God, sent by God for a specific purpose. Number two, he was an apostle by the will of God. What he does is by the will of God. The result of his work is not really his work. It's the work of God through the apostle Paul because it's all by the will of God. Number three, to the saints being in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Let me focus on what I have in italics. Being in Ephesus. When one, when one begins a deeper study of the original text of the New Testament, which is in Koine Greek, he finds himself finally studying the original, I mean the, 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 the original texts, the older manuscripts. Most of them date from the late 200s A.D. up to in the 400s, 500s, maybe even the 600s A.D. And so people who study the Bible with regard to the Greek text, having access to the original, or at least having access to the copies, digital copies in my case, of the original manuscripts, you will, one will find as he studies it that in the oldest manuscripts, the original manuscripts, they're not really the original. We don't have the original anymore. But we do have these copies. But in the earlier copies, it will be discovered that there are very minor differences from the older manuscripts. So let's say we have, we have this section of what we call the Ephesians. We have this section and we know how to date it because of the ink that's used and because of the style of text, the style of letters, we would call it a font, I guess. Because the way people wrote in Koine Greek evolved over a period of time. It's still the same letters, but different ways to write it. And then on the material in which it was written. What kind of material is this original manuscript? Because, you know, they wouldn't have had paper like we have paper today. Or a computer screen. So as time went on the material on which the apostles would write or the early copyists would write changed. Scientifically, it became better material. So it's easy to identify the very oldest of the manuscripts. Now, I'm an older manuscript guy. That I'm old, but I mean, what I mean by that is when I study for the crux of the text, I'm going to depend solely on the earliest manuscripts. Now, 
King James, for example, is translated by the majority text. So you take, you take what's in Ephesians from the 200s A.D. and you go to the 600s A.D. And then you put them all in and say, well, now what, what, you know, what, what do most of them say? You know, the earliest one doesn't say that, but what do most of them say? So you might say, well, we have 600 copies here. Well, let's simplify it. We have 100 copies. And 90 of them say this. Five of them say this. It's very minor. It's just, it's just a very minor, the way a word is spelled or the way a word is placed in the sentence syntactically. And then the oldest two say this. Now, I, I just have a method, and my method and my principle and my philosophy is that the manuscript that is closest to the time when the guy wrote it, in this case, Paul, to me, would be the one to hang your hat on. That's me. Not everybody's like that. Some people like majority text. I like early manuscript, early text. Here's why I said all that. The early texts, and we have several, not just a few, we have several. The earliest texts do not have the phrase being in Ephesus to the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. However, it has been discovered in certain earlier uh, manuscripts that there was evidently a tag and one of those tags would have been a little bit apart from the main body of the writing and it might be up here in the corner or on the scroll as it's written on the outside and it would say those saints being in Ephesus. So what do we make of that? Now if you read the book of Ephesians you'll find that there are no there are no personal names. Paul doesn't get real personal in this letter. It's more of a general epistle, if you will. And here's what historians and scholars have come to believe. That Paul, because in Colossians, Paul references a letter that he wanted to be sure that the Laodiceans read. Could be this one. It's generally believed nowadays with all of the discoveries, and not that it makes a whole lot of difference, but yet it does in a personal sense. If it was a letter, a general epistle to be circulated, it would have gone to the Laodiceans, the Thyatira, uh, all of those Sardis, all of those churches in that, in that tight area to have been circulated. Probably sent first to the saints in Ephesus. And so a copyist somewhere along the way probably just picked up on that. But let's look at it this way. To the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. As a general epistle, which it most likely was, that means it addresses you and it addresses me. It addresses Shiloh or any other church that stands in the name of Christ Jesus. I say that because the riches of Ephesians, what we're going to be taught in this book are profound and powerful and are rich and deep and carry us 
from, if you want to call it, eternity past into the presence, all the way into the heavenlies and carries us through life and speaks about our family relationships and even the spiritual warfare in which we will engage as Christians. It's a wonderful, wonderful letter. So I'm, I'm going to say, you know, to the saints being in Shiloh or in Somerville and faithful in Christ Jesus. Thought number three is that the church is viewed from heaven's side and from earth's side. From heaven's side, he says, to the saints, the set-aside ones, the sanctified ones, uh, the, the ones whom God has set apart. Hagios, saints, to set up, the ones set apart. To the saints... And faithful, now that's from man's point of view. And faithful in Christ Jesus. The centerpiece of everything else that I'm going to say today revolves around the last phrase, in Christ Jesus. Being in Christ Jesus makes all of the difference. The message that I will preach until I'm dead is that we are nothing apart from Christ. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot keep ourselves saved. We cannot raise ourselves from the dead. We cannot project ourselves bodily into heaven. We cannot demand an audience with the Lamb of God. And we cannot purchase a parcel of real estate in the new Jerusalem or even in the new earth. It is all in Christ. I have nothing unless I have it in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we start out seeing that what we're about to study here are the blessings from God the Father. God the Father wills it. It is the will of God the Father. Whatever happens is the will of God the Father. It is executed by God the Son and empowered by God the Holy Spirit. This is our great God. So when grace is extended to us, we have peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thought number five. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is in prison. God has revealed to him the profound truth of divine election and in that inspiration Paul's immediate reaction is to praise God 
I'm in Christ, not by anything that I've done, but because of what God has done. And we're going to see, we're going to see some very rich and deep things here. My, my response to that, I can't do anything about it. My response to it is just to praise God for it. That's all part of who we are in Christ Jesus. Thought number six. The one that is the Father, having blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. There it is again, in Christ. Everything else hangs on that, in Christ, in Christ. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Let me think about this. Now, in the heavenly realms is the domain of God. In a spiritual sense, in the kingdom of God, this is where I live. I am a citizen of heaven. And in a practical sense, I'm headed there and will be there and live there forever. God already sees it that way. It's the domain of God. And in his domain, God has already granted to me every spiritual blessing. What are my spiritual blessings? There's no way I can name them all. But I can start with the fact that he chose me in Christ. I couldn't have done anything about that. That was before anything ever happened. And we'll see that in the next slide. So God has chosen me from before the foundation of the world. This is an individual personal thing. In the course of time, God created me. I couldn't create myself. In the course of time, God caused me to be born again. I could not birth myself spiritually. I could not give myself a spiritual rebirth or cause regeneration in my life. That's a spiritual blessing. The Bible teaches me that repentance and faith are gifts from God. I did not have the power to repent. Spirit, dead in trespass and sin. What can a dead person do? I didn't have the power, the wherewithal, the spirit, the, the, the personal presence to repent or express faith. Those were gifts of God. Once I'm awakened and regenerated and born again, there's this natural procession. So those are spiritual blessings. We're going to find in the course down in about verses 13 and 14 that the Holy Spirit has been placed in my life. I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have reached out and grabbed the Holy Spirit and crammed him down my throat. I couldn't do that. That's a spiritual blessing. Someday I'll be parted unless the Lord comes by rapture. I'll be parted from the physical body and the physical body will just collapse and fall. And the Spirit will go back to God who gave it. I can't do that. I can't command that the essential spiritual essence of who I am be separated from the old nasty physical thing that I am and float up and fly up into the presence. I can't do that. That's a spiritual blessing. To be clothed upon with a glorious robe, I can't do that. Then to be resurrected gloriously into glorification, I don't have the power to do that. To stand in God's presence forever and to have a home in his new Jerusalem and enjoy the infinite blessings 
of the new heaven and the new earth. I can't place myself there. I can't demand those things. Those are spiritual blessings that are given to me. And there are others that we're going to see that are mentioned in this text that we're looking at today. So the Father in Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms has blessed me with every spiritual blessing. Let me tell you something. There aren't enough original Spider-Man comic books in creation that would even approach the riches that I have in Christ that God has done this for me in the heavenly realms in Christ. Thought number seven. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I can't do anything about that. People choke on that because of human pride. Oh no. They have to hear me preach before they can be saved. They have to enjoy the glory of my spiritual presence before they can enjoy the glory of God's spiritual presence. Oh no. I had to make the decision. I had to pray the right prayer. I had to do the thing that had to be done. I, Christ died on the cross, but I had to finish it up. It's not what it says. And it's not just here, by the way. Just as excelexato, he chose and then Hamas, us. He chose. All right. Listen. Here comes your Greek lesson of the day. He chose. Exilexis. That Greek word up there is in the middle reflexive. Here's what this means. God did it. To be in the middle voice means that the subject takes all the action and imposes the action upon the one who would receive the action and the one receiving the action can participate in the results but has nothing to do with the giving of what to give the results. Did you stay with me on that? God did it. I didn't do it. God gave it. I just got it. When the Apostle Paul was sitting in his prison house, divinely inspired to write what I believe is a general epistle that probably went to Ephesus first and then from there made its way around. Paul says to the believer, before the foundation, foundation concept, before God ever wrote the blueprint, before God ever conceived or set into action the blueprint, before, before that ever, I mean, we're in the heavenly, heavenly realms here. We're not in the time-space continuum when God did this. How rich am I? If you want a book on self-worth, those seem to sell a lot these days. You know? Like Irma Bromba, she'd been dead a while. If I'm, let's see. If life is a bowl of cherries, why am I always in the pits? I think that was the title of the book. And then there are even guys 
in the, in the pulpit who will just preach to you and tell you how great you are. Well, we start out understanding that we are depraved and we are helpless and lost and undone and nasty and defiled and vile. But God does something. There's nothing I can do to give myself any self-worth. Because apart from this, what we just read here, apart from that, I am consigned to hell because I'm a sinner. I am of Adam. In Adam, all die. That's what the Bible says. So there's nothing for me but a hard, Christless, hopeless grave that will spit me out into the lake of fire forever. That's all the hope I have unless God intervenes by grace and does something that I cannot do. And he has to, he has to, he does it as part of his master plan. This is his master plan. His master plan included me individually and you, all of us who are in Christ, included us before the foundation of the world. He chose us, middle reflexive. He did it all, I did nothing. He performed the action, I just received the benefits and results of it. That's how it was written. That's how Paul, sitting in that prison, inspired by God, wrote it out. When did he do this? You'll never know. I can't go outside time and space. I can't do that. God can. God belongs into every realm. He created it all. I can't do that. But all I know is before he even conceived the world, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Thought number eight, for us to be holy and blameless before him. Now, I told you that everything that is said here is a spiritual blessing and it hangs on this little phrase, in Christ, in Christ. There's nothing good in me. You can never tear Christ away from me, but if you, if you could tear Christ away from me, you know what you would find? You would find a guy who was thinking every kind of evil thought, seeking little private ways to perform every kind of evil deed because these things, Christ said it, these things proceed out of the heart of man. But for the grace of God, but for his divine intervention, before the foundation of the world. In the eyes of God the Father, because I am in Christ, I am presented before him as holy and blameless. Because I'm in Christ. God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. God looks at me. He sees the one whom he chose in Christ. He sees the one for whom Christ died on the cross, for whom Christ came into this world. We'll get to that part, God willing, next time. Chose us in him before the foundation for us to be holy and blameless before him. We just finished the book of the Revelation. If you were like me, you dreamed of yourself in the new Jerusalem. 
And how am I there? Holy and blameless. It's very clear in the closing part of the revelation that nothing that defiles can go in there because in the resurrection and in the rapture, if I don't die, the old nasty thing dies and drops away and is put away. But the regenerated, born-again, spiritual man whom God has glorified stands in his presence. Never to have anything to do with sin and depravity anymore. Fault number nine. In love, having predestined us for divine adoption as sons. There it is again through Jesus Christ to himself. What was God thinking? You know what John writes in his epistle? He says, we love God because he first loved us. I didn't love God first. God loved me first. It was the power of God that caused me to be born again. And now I can exercise love to my heavenly father in love having predestined us for divine adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Now we, I, I preached an adoption some weeks ago when I was in Galatians. You probably can go to your, uh, to go to your margins there in your Bible. I'm sure you took careful notes on everything that was written about. Adoption, here's what, let's simplify it. Adoption places us in a legal status as sons of God. It's always referred to as sons here because sons were the ones who would receive the inheritance. The divine adoption is sons, so that means that we bypass all of the legal stuff and we bypass all of that harsh training. If you were a, if you were a son born into the family, a servant was appointed to you and he was a harsh taskmaster. He would beat you to make sure that you behaved right and learned the right stuff in a Roman household. But adopted as sons through Christ Jesus means that Christ has already taken all that. I move right into legal status and I'm in the family as much as anybody and I am in the family of God through Jesus Christ. I'm not diminished in any way. Well, look at me. Why would he choose me? <laughs> Fault number 10. According to the good pleasure of his will, because he wanted to. I can't argue beyond that. The pleasure of his will. It was his will, it was his desire to do this, to choose us, predestined us, as divine, to divinely adopt us through Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, because it was his will to do so. It was his purpose to do so. Now, I know what people think when they study this kind of thing. Well, that gives people a license to sin. No, it doesn't. 
If you are a born again, bought by the blood, spirit baptized, Bible believing Christian, <laughs> you, are, you are restrained in many ways. And if you fight against it, God will kill you. Sin unto death. Understand, here's what you need to understand about divine election. Salvation is all of God and none of me. I cannot divinely choose people. Therefore, the command and commission upon my heart and upon my life and upon this church is to preach the gospel to every creature. Paul said, what I do, I do for the sake of the elect. Well, we can say the same thing, but we don't know who they are. Spurgeon said it's something like this. You know, if every man was born with a yellow stripe somewhere, I don't know, up his back or whatever, and God, God put this divine mark on everybody's backbone, then all we'd have to do is go around and jerk everybody's shirt up and look at their back. But God didn't do that. Because he wants me to exercise the spiritual gift that he's given to me and to you, in your case, and work together to preach the gospel to every creature. We don't know whom God will choose for himself. That's a God thing. That's a heavenly thing. But we evangelize. We exercise missions and, and efforts and missionary efforts. And, and we, we, some of our people went out and handed out tracts. Y'all didn't pull up shirt tails, did you? Okay, that's what I thought, see? I don't know if they'd, I'd be having to bail them out, I guess, this morning. We have a responsibility, but God does everything according to the good pleasure of his will. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Even the angels marvel at the concept of grace. Which he has freely given us in the beloved one. It's not outside of Christ. We preach Christ. We preach Christ. We don't preach ordinances. We don't preach church membership. We don't preach legal. We preach Christ and him crucified. You want to be saved? You come to Christ. You don't come to me. You don't come to the church. You come to Christ. It is all in Christ. And there we have every spiritual blessing. All of them. And I'm rich. Forever. I'm a joint heir with Christ. In Christ. The beloved one, we are in him and it's all by his grace, to the glory of his grace. This means that there will be no boasting in heaven. We won't be able to compare how bad we were one with another and think of how Hard it was, harder it was for God to get me into heaven than it was to get. It doesn't work like that. We're all lost and unsaved and helpless and hopeless and depraved apart from Christ. And so God calls to Christ. This is how we're saved. 
We don't necessarily come emotionally or any other. We just come to Christ. God gives to us an unction that cannot be denied. He issues us a call that cannot be resisted. I believe that with all my heart. How in the world can the God of heaven take a chance on something? God doesn't take chances. God is not a victim. God is God. He is sovereign God. And we are saved by grace. We're going to get to that one of these days in Ephesians 2. Through faith. Plus nothing. Not of your works. If it was anything that you did, you'd be able to boast about it. But there will be no boasting. When we stand before the Lord, we are there to praise Him for the glory of His grace. Not the glory of my works, the glory of his grace. Bow your heads, close your eyes, please, would you? Jesus Christ is the son of God. He came into this world to save sinners. Has God placed it in your heart that you are a sinner in need of a savior? That's a God thing. I can't convince people of stuff like that. It's a God thing. It comes by the power of the word. Today, if you would be saved on your way out as you exit, we have deacons and deacons' wives waiting in the rooms just as you exit across the hall, ready to pray with you and to talk to you about salvation. Perhaps you need to follow the Lord in baptism, having already been saved. They'll talk to you about that. Maybe you need to join this church and to be a part of a local body of believers we pray for one another. We work for one another. We care for one another. We fellowship with one another. We study the word of God with one another. We are accountable to one another. They'll answer your questions about that as well. If that's on your heart. Father God in heaven, Lord, thank you for bringing us together today. Thank you for your precious holy word Thank you for the riches, the undiminished riches that are always ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, as we go from this place, dismiss us in your love. And use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning.